Yep. And you just want, you know, metrics and monitoring that works out of the box. You're not screwing with that. Right. And that's, to me, that's a solution that has, you know, slam dunk. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was nothing. He's like, we were hooking it to Kubernetes. He's like, it was just like, I deployed their daemon set and it was done and it worked. And I was like, yeah, they, they they're have a that. commercial product. They got lots of And they've of been there. around long enough that they have yep. solutions for all of the common things. Mm-hmm. And so your toolkit is really super complete. And, you know, if you've got Spark jobs you want to instrument, you just pick that tool up out of the bag and run with it. Yeah. And stab your eye out. Welcome to the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. We are here to talk about the practical side of operations work. This week, we're talking about if SRE scales. Are you interested in promoting practical experience in the operations, DevOps, and SRE spaces? Consider sponsoring the Practical Operations Podcast. Contact us at sponsor at operations.fm for details. So this week's episode comes out of an article that um, by Tyler Treat titled SRE doesn't scale. And so big hint, this, the gentleman who wrote this does not think that SRE scales appropriately for large organizations or as organizations grow, but it was a really interesting look Clickbait. at, well, there is that, <laughs> but it was a really interesting look at the way as organizations grow and evolve and change. And these new practices that are coming down from larger tech companies, how some of these things don't really function if you can't just hire your way out of it. And I've seen this in organizations that I've worked with, which is really kind of, well, scary. You know, sh people shouldn't be able to tell me my own stories, right? That's a nice theory, but yeah. It was reading, interesting reading it. Um, in, to be honest, you know, does it scale? I don't know. I don't have any SREs. Our entire department's a half dozen people. But, you know, I have worked in organizations and yeah, it's hard. You've. Does it scale? No. You got to have, well, Google wrote the book. You got to have Google resources to do this. Well, or at least do it like as the book says. Um, so, yeah. And no, not really, but if. And so many people take SRE as just kind of the latest trendy marketing term. Um, when I was doing consulting work, you know, I spoke about SRE because that's, you know, what is the trendy markety thing that gets people's attention, just like the title of this article. Um, so most people end up implementing it very differently and calling what may not really be SRE, SRE. And and see, this where I think I'm at with this, is that I, I'm, I'm wondering if the role that we're calling SRE is more like what DevOps was, where it's it's more about practices or what you should be doing versus a, a position. Um, I, I mean, maybe in some organizations, uh, as the example at, at Google, there's enough people or there's enough of the work to go around that you can have dedicated roles to it. But I think for most, especially small businesses that it's more about, can you implement these types of practices versus hiring specific people to, function as an SRE. Yeah, one of the it's in the article, it's also in the book. Um 
and the article calls it as, as the key thing of the book of the hiring experience qualified SREs is difficult and costly. Despite enormous efforts from the recruiting organization, there are never enough SREs to support all the services that need their expertise. That's coming from Google. Like Google has, Google is massive and has a huge hiring engine and they have difficulty scaling SRE to their, their current needs. And, and if you do, yeah, if your organization does from, not have a massive. Hiring from my, uh, where I am, we have the same problems of, you know, I'm in those interviews trying to figure out who's going to be the good SRE candidate. And it's hard. And Jared and I both work for a very large organization that has a very large hiring engine. And I can't say that I, I dislike it. I, I love having a huge talent pool to draw from and a lot of organizational depth and skill to lean on and look for other people's documentations and runbooks and examples because a lot of what the the scaling of SRE that I see that's a problem is teaching people how to understand the metrics the the telemetry the signals that come off of their running code so that when there's a problem they've done the the work you have to do beforehand to get instrumentation to get things to be reliable in a reasonable way Maybe and I love, I, I love being able language. to, to I love being able to lean on that on that expertise, but most organizations, they are so far from being able to hire enough people who are focused on that that they, you can embed them in teams to get best practices. Like it just, it's hard. Well, I mean, it's not just hiring SREs. You've got to you have to go with the whole mindset. The it's it's not just those people. It's the practices that then you can those people can use. And can fit into. I mean, you're not going to hire SREs when you don't have a CI/CD pipeline for your your deployments, and you don't. There's a lot of stuff that's got to come first. Then you can start filling it in and handing it off because if they're not going to take it if it's not done right, because it's just going to be a hassle. And that's a key differentiator with hiring SREs and having SRE practice is you stating clearly, does the SRE group maintain your base infrastructure, your, your CI CD pipelines, or is there a different cloud platform ish kind of group uh, that's in charge with, you know, maintaining your Kubernetes infrastructure. So your SREs can focus on, on what they need to focus on and having that as a clear delineation and part of your expectations really helps you sort of focus, you know, organizationally on building out what you want that SRE program to be. And I think that's why, like I said, for me, it goes back to, especially in small businesses or small companies, starting off with, it's more of a mindset and to Jack and, and Ken's point, those t- the the base teams that are going to build up the infrastructure that SRE may use later on that that stuff has to be the foundation has to be laid first and hopefully those who are laying the foundation have an eye towards these SRE practices so that it, whenever you do scale up and and you have the ability to maybe hire some dedicated SRE folks you already have the mindset in place to where that team it's almost like they already have more headcount than they have because they don't have to go and retrain everybody or redo everything. It's like, oh, we already are are doing SLOs. We're already 
monitoring. We're already doing this. And so we can just keep the, the engine running instead of having to start from some scratch. Yeah, trying to have the SREs come into a, an environment that grew rapidly and say shifted from a monolith to microservices or whatever to Kubernetes or however, whatever the shift was, but it was done without a lot of thought towards that. The SRE team is going to spend a huge amount of their initial startup time just getting basics in place rather than doing the work to make things more reliable. And that is also not a great pattern. You got to know it's not reliable first before you fix it. Well, I think you also touched on, you know, shifting to microservices. If you've only got to maintain a monolith, granted it's a monolith, but it's one thing. As you break it apart, you now have this exponential growth of dependencies and services and it's just so many more pieces that you have to have insight into or well see the previous episode observability that you know what you know what's going on in your entire environment to even start trying to maintain it at that level um but as i said in the article then you know you can't uh, even google doesn't have sres taking everything some things can still be production without being um, under the purview of SREs. Well, even worse, especially in a, in an organization, not the size of Google, if you don't have discipline about your microservices and about the way you're scaling things out in your hiring practices, I've seen so many, in so many cases where there's a microservice that was written by a development team and the development team then got reorged and one person is off in somewhere else and two other people have since found other jobs. But the microservice is still running. It isn't really owned by anybody. Nobody really wants to touch it. It's kind of important, but it's just sort of floating. And it's not that you have one of these in an organization. You often have many. Many. And you don't realize yeah. it's a problem until you go to redeploy and you're like, hang on. Well, who builds and releases this? And the answer is uh, nobody. There's this, there's this one person over on, on the data storage team now or whatever. Oh, yeah, they left last week. They might know, well, <laughs> they might know something. And yeah, it, it's it's a mess. Um, to have SRE scale the way Google scales it, from my understanding, you have to have an incredible amount of like organizational Discipline. management and just, just fortitude to keep things working in a reasonable way. And I think the article points out really clearly that if you expect microservices scale well, A, you probably shouldn't couple a transition to microservices with a transition from to SRE from a more classic model. Um, you should perhaps, you know, take those separately. But, you know, most importantly, it's not free reign for developer teams to be completely self-sufficient, isolated little bubbles doing their own thing. It's developer teams are responsible for their full stack, which isn't the same thing. Each developer team should be adhering to the, the, the preset expectations and frameworks and standards that we have company-wide. Those standards aren't going to work for everything, but when they work for 80, 90, 95% of your use cases, then that you know, vastly simplifies what your SREs are responsible for doing. And not to diverge too much here, but I, I have to go back to where I... I'm a big fan of monoliths. I'm sorry. I mean, I think some things should be broken out. Like it makes sense for like auth and a few other services to kind of be decoupled from your, your app. 
But I think when it comes down to it, having a monolith versus trying to have 50 or 100 microservices makes so much more sense. And it, and it eases deployment. It eases a lot of other things uh, to where you'll probably be making better decisions anyway than if you were to trying to start out the gate with microservices. But like I said, it's kind of a off topic. I mean, we, we've talked about that many times before, and none of us are fans of having thousands of microservices or hundreds of microservices. But I think having, you know, fives, tens of microservices, it's a fairly yeah. reasonable place to be. <laughs> but you have to be careful because the microservice pattern allows people to to have one thing that scales and, and you know, iterates really, really quickly. But then you have lots of little teams doing lots of little things and then you lose that cohesion of, hey, we have a coding standard. Hey, we have a logging standard. Hey, we have a whatever it is. So you you drift apart naturally, kind of like the way accents um, work for languages where you have different parts of the world speak technically the same language, but they don't understand each other because things have gotten so like specialized to these little domains. And it's like, oh, well, this one engineer at one point found a really cool trick to do this but that breaks this other thing this other team was doing. And so now, yeah, I mean, it's the same language and it's sort of the same, but it doesn't actually work together. And now you have a huge set of problems. Yep. Yeah. As, as much as they stink, I, I firmly believe in coding standards and linters and saying, <laughs> hey, we're all going to adopt similar patterns and we're going to have folks do code reviews of other people's, like, it's not just your engineering team it's, or not just your particular um, development team. It's other teams also look at your code and go, hey, uh, that pattern doesn't really fit with how this other library works or whatever. Could we make sure that we stay together on some of these pieces? And, okay. and, and having those practices written so we can refer to them, and they're not static, of course. They change over time, but you can go back in your wiki and see what things looked like over time as, as your practices mature. But, you know, have the that document that you can compare with, you know, we use these frameworks, these tools to develop this kind of application. Well, I think you just used the key term for that mature. It is, <laughs> <laughs> it is not just the maturity of, of the people, including us, because I used to hate all those things. And now, oh my God, they make so much sense. It's also as organizations mature, it just starts to dawn on them that, hey, all these things have benefits. We should do them. And we as computer engineers, software scientists, whoa, those words were backwards, are incredibly faddish people. Uh, you know, every you know, six months we're kind of on to the new thing. And that makes, you know, controlling that really, really difficult. Um, because there's there's really good reason why we may want to be on the new thing because it may simplify a process you know, dramatically. Um, but is that simplification there worth the price we have to pay elsewhere? Or what is the larger you know, plan to move forward your standard stack? And I think doing things like that is is a built-in way to get yourself an air quote in SRE already. If you have standards in your organization, if you use common libraries, if you... Uh, do those kinds of things that already is effectively the work of probably one or two full-time employees trying to implement those standards. So if everybody does pulls their weight and does it already, that, that's just even more, uh, you know, motion going towards 
doing those kinds of things better. So in the end of the article about SRE doesn't scale, um, the author links to another article they wrote called Scaling DevOps and the Revival of Operations, which I have not given a heavy read through, but is also an interesting part of this. And it reminds me, the, the SRE stuff and the DevOps stuff reminds me a lot of the fact that we have these terms that we have sort of overloaded. And now it's, oh, well, we're going to grab an ops person and turn them into a <laughs> DevOps person because, hey, uh, you're you're better than the average ops person with scripting. So, yeah, you're, you're DevOps now and we're going to pay you some more money. You're an ops person and we're that give can you this, code? Well, that means you're SRE, right? Well, and exactly. And, and then it's like, oh, well, you understand metrics and, and you can code or you understand metrics and you're an ops. Oh, now, hey, you're, you're an SRE for us. It's like, um, not quite. Uh, the terms in our industry. As so I told fluid. my employer recently, that's the problem with observability. I have to be an SRE too. <laughs> yeah, and it's not bad, but I agree with Jared that it's much more of a mindset. And if you approach the the SRE problem as a mindset and not a position, or rather you have, it's a mindset, and then you have a couple of folks who are really, really strong on it, and they have the position your success rate for getting the stuff done goes up dramatically. Whereas if you're just like, oh, we have reliability problems. Um, let's buy four SREs. <laughs> like, well, that um, that doesn't Good really there. No. Yeah. No, and that's, that's absolutely it. You don't need an SRE as a person. Well, you may, but SRE is a mindset or following the practices, getting the repeatability, get the, the pipelines, get, get the whole idea of it's not the wild west. You don't get to do what you want. Start putting the constraints on everybody and setting up standards and everything else. You know, in the end you might have an environment where you had an SRE and they just act as a gatekeeper for some of it, but everything's already there. I hope so. Cause that's what I'm having to try to do. Yeah, but if the culture isn't there, it doesn't matter how many individuals oh, you hire to implement God, yeah. it, you'll yeah, never get there. That's the truly hard part, is bringing in a high-performing SRE, a uh, couple candidates, building out a high-performing team in a place that doesn't hasn't really fully adopted that culture. Intent and you end up stifling that long. team. Well, yeah, I mean, they're not going to last. Would anybody... Not not just the four people on this on this recording, but if, if anybody who's really passionate about something gets pulled into a place where they feel like their skills are either being wasted or stymied or they're spending all of their time doing the really kind of basic like entry level stuff, they're not going to stay. It, it's not it's not worth their time, no matter how much you pay them, because they're going to get bored. And as soon as you get bored, eh, it's especially for the high performing types, it's over. They're They're going to walk. And especially in the, frankly, COVID um, environment that we're in, good SREs don't spend time unemployed. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. I was going to make the joke. They don't walk. They stay sitting in the same chair at home. They're just now getting paid by somebody else. <laughs> yeah, the chair just kind of <laughs> levitates over a bit. Yeah. A new laptop arrives. Exactly. And we played like Reddit recently in the past, I don't know, 12 months with the whole COVID stuff talking about this, this particular issue. They said they're dropping all of their geographic um, pay boundaries for the U.S. So if you are working for Reddit 
and you are in New York or you're in Kansas, you're on the same pay scale. They're not trying to do the whole, oh, well, we're going to pay you less because you're in Iowa or we're going to pay you less because you're in Alabama. We're going to pay you more because you're in San Francisco. It's no, we have a national pay scale that is a standard across the country because the new reality is we're all remote and it doesn't make sense to like to to bifurcate it that way, which also means that there are so many more of the high-end job openings that are starting to become available regardless of where you are. So if you have somebody who's a really high performer and they're bored or they're not, they're not feeling like they're fitting in or being, being appreciated, their options are super open right now. Yep. So yeah, keep your SREs happy. Uh, but yeah, culture change is always difficult. And my yeah. answer for a culture change has usually been get another job with a better culture. And, but the SRE in me says that's cheating and that I should put some actual effort into, you know, building up some of those cultures when I encounter uh, less mature cultures. And so, yeah, Ken, when you figure that out, let me know. Yeah. You have to, you know, as someone who's going through that right now, the organization as a whole, and specifically upper management has to buy into supporting that change. Very much. It's a huge, huge change. And if you don't have buy-in, yeah, you will leave. And you're not going to change all of it at the same time. It's finding no. something that you can focus on where you can make that change happen and make it effective. Yep. Also and again, this hard. is grabbing really good senior technical leadership that understands that culture is important, that understands that these kinds of directions are important to foster and have them pick out the folks in the organization that are best suited to implement the change at the appropriate speed. Yeah. If you if you try to do it all at once, that's almost worse than not doing it at all because you're going to break things and you're going to essentially We're ruin back to the, the teams. The oh. initial assumption of our article of choice here is, you know, pouring toward the cloud and moving to an SRE type of of workflow doing both of those at the same time is hard and nigh on impossible. It is uh, doing it right now. It's, it's been making small victories in that sense, getting something, moving it, getting the process in place and letting people see the benefits that as far as making the cultural change, that's been the key is, Hey, see, look at this. Yeah, it took some extra work, but you asked for this change, boom, 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 it's done, and it didn't take any effort. The change flowed through the pipeline, it got tested in one, it moved to the other, promotions, and it just, it was easy. Small wins are good. And frankly, yeah. I think the smaller the win, the better. Because they're yeah. easier. It I'm reminded been... of that XKCD comic that talks about the, like the, the, the number of times you do something and the amount of time saved and that, that scale of when oh, yeah. it makes sense to work on something. Absolutely. The small wins, especially for things you do constantly or you do that are super scary or, or whatever. Like Honestly, I find the, the, new, the new trend in TLS certificates having a 30 or 90 day life is good because it forces everybody to get on the idea of Okay, so we need to have all the SANs and all the CNs and all the things we need for the certificate documented clearly because instead of writing it once every year or two, the on-call is doing it 
every month, every other month. Like, come on, we have to. We have we Cert have to Manager installed, and it's going to auto rotate that thing every ninety days. And this is what happens when it doesn't go right. Yeah. Exactly, but because it it was used to be so painful and scary, it always got put off. It always got like handed <laughs> down to the most junior person on the team, and it's like, yeah, you have fun with that because it, it's going to break. And when it breaks, you get to deal with the the next hour or two of requesting a new cert while people are yelling that things are broken. Well, that's terrible. But having it be something you exercise frequently so it becomes routine and painless, that's the kind of thing you need to start off with on on changing these cultures for SRE. Find the find a piece of the production pipeline or the release pipeline that isn't working well or find some piece of like the automated test suite that isn't being exercised easily and fix that. And then say, okay, well, now that we have that and we can put our metrics in, we can work on, let's make sure that when somebody releases code that doesn't have the the underlying metrics for the four golden signals, that we throw errors. And we make it really easy to turn it back on again. And you do that over and over and over again until everybody gets kind of comfortable with, okay, well, this is how this works. And we have a, a pretty reasonable plan and a pretty reasonable pattern. And then you do the next thing. And you keep on pushing it as people adopt the right bits and then you move forward. Yeah. Speaking of easy wins and automation, uh, just as an example, I was, I'm on call this week and right before recording, I got paged for an event that, uh, used to, I'd, I would not like being paged for because while it's not necessarily difficult, there's just certain commands I need to run and they need to be in a certain order and it's very tedious and, you know, it's just painful. And uh, fortunately, some a member on our team wrote a script recently that automated most of that. So that it's to the point now where you, if you get paged for this, it's like, oh, I just need to run this script. And it, it tells me this is the problem. And then it's like, would you like me to fix it? And then the script will try to fix it. And like I said, it's not that the, the commands were difficult. It's just it was tedious. And if you did them out of order, you could break more things. And it was it was nice to not have to really worry about, oh, I'm getting ready to run this. And something bad's going to happen. Are you going to set up auto remediation with that? Ooh. <laughs> you know, as I, I was saying, I couldn't help myself. <laughs> I know, I know. And then, as I'm saying, it's like, oh, this, this probably could go for auto remediation, but I, I'm not a huge fan of that, to be honest with you. Um, I even if it's think something anybody on this is, I think they're it, fine. It, well, I mean, I, I, it, it's, it's something that, that is sexy, right? People say, oh, you know, instead of getting paged and you have to run it, the thing automatically does it. And then the problem is, what if it runs it 100 times because it's broken? I have said every time somebody brings that up, I'm like, if it's that easy, fix the freaking thing in the first place. I mean, to <laughs> me, the thing that fails about auto-remediation is, you know, you've, you've made a workflow, a firewall path to get that alert to pager duty or to wherever you're going so you can be aware. Okay, pager duty now sells a service they bought somebody um to set up an auto remediation service right so now i've got to let their auto remediation service back into my infrastructure and i'm like wait a minute hard stop here this this needs to be one way yeah that that that's a no that's a no go for me yeah and you know we're if we continue our push into more modern infrastructures we get to the point of can we have an operator that does that task for us in Kubernetes when it detects a condition? Can we move forward so the application can say, hey, I've encountered a condition, I'm broken, I'm going to fail my readiness check. And those are usually much faster to implement and much more accurate and reliable 
than some of the the really trendy auto remediation things that that folks have have been trying to sell me recently. I I think to tie all this together though is as mentioned in the book and in in the article, hiring is hard and the more that you do from the outset to implement these SRE practices, the easier it's going to be when you do hire, eventually hire, if you do plan to hire for an SRE position, uh, because it will be a, a more attractive position and you won't have to hire as many people, hopefully, because you're already doing it. And remembering to chart out some time as you're building out SRE teams to be able to structure and define what that means for your company and get some of that documentation written so that we can have reference to the practice that we're trying to build that builds a strong SRE culture. And that not every production service has to be SRE'd. You You don't have to embed an SRE with everybody, people. Exactly. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and coworkers. We'd also appreciate folks taking the time to rate the show on Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory. Additionally, we welcome feedback about shows you've recorded or topics you would like us to cover. Leave us a comment on the website at operations.fm or send us your thoughts on email, feedback at operations.fm. And that wraps it up for this episode of the Practical Operations Podcast. I'm Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Ken Mink. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jer Watkins. Thanks, and good night. I wonder if I can write an SLO for the number of companies that embed all of their SREs. <laughs> and the auto remediation playbook will just send them a copy of Google's SRE book. <laughs>